All right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fuck, buddies? What the fucking ears? What the fuck, Nicks? What the fucksters? What the fucksables? What the fuckadelics? I'm going to end on what the fuckadelics. You dig? I am Mark Marin. This is WTF. This is an interesting show we got going today. Interesting show. Interesting story. I think you'll learn something about me. I think I learned something about me. It was a, a real what the fuck event that happened in my life is sort of documented here in this first story. But I, but I, before I get to that, I'd like to, uh, again, thank everyone for coming out to uh, my shows. As some of you know, I'm doing every Tuesday in March, I'm riffing through stuff to find an hour. It's the, it's the flounder and find an hour, the flailing, floundering, soul-wrestling uh, workshop hours at the uh, Steve Allen Theater at the Trippany House. You can go to trippityhouse.org to see uh, if there's anything uh, available. I believe on the 25th, uh, the uh, the lovely Moon Zappa will be opening for me. Yeah, that's right. She can tell some tales. Pow, look out. I just shit my pants. Just coffee.coop. Available at WTFpod.com. Haven't heard that one in a while. That's a classic. So what else is happening? I got my niece in town, and we're going to go do uh, California things. Uh, she's never been here. She seems to be somewhat of a... Of a a, a rocker, a hipster. I'm not sure what, you know, I don't, I'm not gonna, I don't know, it's hard. I, I don't, I've never spent time with a 15-year-old girl, not since I was 15, and she's my niece. So we're gonna go do things. I took her to UCB last night to see uh, Ass Cat. That was great. She lives in Phoenix. I mean, what, what, I mean, let's be honest, what can she really see in Phoenix? I mean, it's not my brother's fault, but not a lot of options. Uh, today, I think she wants to go to the, uh, to American Apparel. And it just so happens, I think I know where the original American Apparel store is. Not that that's going to be a big deal, but, you know, it did start here, I believe. Then we'll take a picture with the, at the Hollywood sign, and then I'm going to take her to Hollywood Boulevard and show her that mess. And then I'm going to take her to Venice Beach eventually. I think I'm going to take her to Wacko, that great store. I'm going to take her uh, maybe to Melrose, but that seems a little weird. Probably the Grove. I mean, the kid likes to shop. And then tomorrow, I think we're going to Venice. Why am I telling you all this? So why is today's show... A, uh, a brain bender. Well, I'll tell you why. It's it's a somewhat somewhat traumatic experience for me. On the show today, we have two guests. There are two guests on the show. The first guest is Kevin MacDonald. He will be the first portion of the show. The second of the sh- half of the show is Kevin McDonald. Okay? The, are you starting to get that there, there could be a, a bit of confusion? bit of confusion you know they're two very different people very different people and quite honestly i had no idea who one of them was. let me you know what i'll just tell you the story so my assistant my then assistant sam uh, asked me if i want to interview kevin mcdonald and i'm like yeah i want to interview kevin mcdonald i love kids in the hall kids in the, uh, you know i like all those guys i'd like to interview them all i've had foley on uh, and i'd like to start sort of Knocking out the rest of them. Would love to interview Kevin McDonald. So she sets it up. And then the day comes where I'm supposed to interview Kevin McDonald. Now, you know, I'm, I'm working on the show. Of, you know, we're writing, I think, uh, at the time. And we're doing it in the morning, you know. And uh, so I'm waiting for Kevin McDonald to show up. Someone shows up at the door. I have it open the screen. It's a woman. And I go, hi, how you doing? She goes, yeah, hi, I'm the, I'm the publicist. And I'm like, oh, wow. So I'm thinking, why? Kevin McDonald's got some shit going on because usually publicists only come with, you know, heavy hitters. People have shit going on. 
And I'm like, oh, oh, well, great. Yeah, come on in. And uh, she goes, did you get to see the movie? And I said, uh, I did not get a screener. I'm sorry. And then I said, uh, what does he play in it? And she goes, no, no, he, he, he directed it. And I'm thinking, wow, that's great. Uh, Kevin's got a lot of stuff going on. I'm, I'm thrilled for him. You know, honestly, I'm like, that's great. You know, because I hadn't heard about what he was doing or where he's been. And, you know, he's directing a movie. That's fabulous. And I go, well, where is he? And she goes, well, he's about five minutes out. And I'm like, okay. He's coming in a separate car. That's great. And uh, and then I just, uh, we wait a few minutes. It wasn't five minutes. It was like three minutes. And someone, uh, a man shows up at the door and uh, I let him in. And, you know, they're both looking at me and I realize, holy shit, this is Kevin McDonald. Uh, I don't know who this Kevin McDonald is. I don't know what he does. I've never seen him before in my fucking life. But he's here to be interviewed because we scheduled it. I did not know this is Kevin McDonald. This is Ke- Kevin McDonald showed up in my house. M-A-C-D-O-N-A-L-D. Not M-C-D-O-N-A-L-D. So I literally have no fucking idea who this guy is. I know he's got a movie that he's plugging. Uh, I know it's called How I Live Now, but that's really all I got to go on from the publicist. So they are a few minutes early. So we go out to the deck and I say, you know, you're a couple minutes early. Uh, You mind? I got a couple tech things I got to do and then I'll come out and get you. Now, I don't know if they knew the terror in my face and in my heart. I couldn't say, hey, man, who are you? What's up? Uh, you're not who I expected. You know, I'm, I, I, I want to be respectful. This guy made the trip. He's obviously a guy. He's a guy who has a publicist means he's something. So I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm just going to wing it. I'm going to, I'm going to just, um, play the part. I'm just going to act like everything's copacetic. So I don't know what I was exuding, but what I was feeling was pure panic when I came into my garage and quickly went to IMDb and quickly went to Wikipedia to find out that this Kevin MacDonald was a pretty big Scottish film director. All right, this is the guy that directed Marley. He directed a lot of things. Most of them I had never seen. I'm going down this filmography, uh, you know, The Making of an Englishman. No, Chaplin's Goliath. No, The Moving World of Uh, of George Rickey, no. Howard Hawks, American artist, no. Okay, so now he knows he's a documentary guy. All right, so he makes documentaries one day of September. Won an Academy Award. I got an Academy Award winner on my deck who I'm supposed to interview. No fucking idea. No idea. Humphrey Jennings, A Brief History of Earl Morris. Don't know. Being Mick, uh, don't know, but it's about Mick Jagger. Fine. Touching the voice. The Last King of Scotland. The Last King of Scotland. The Last King of Scotland. I saw that one. I saw The Last King of Scotland with the with Forrest Whitaker. He plays Edie Amin. I saw that one. I saw that one. Oh, thank God. All right. So I, I got to weigh in. Uh, Marley, I know, is popular. I didn't see any of that. I didn't see the new movie. I didn't see it. Last King of Scotland. Got it. Got it. In documentaries. Okay. All right. I can do this, man. I can do this. I can, I can, I can fake this. I try to get focused. And, uh, and I bring him in. I bring Kevin MacDonald, whose plug-in movie I've not seen, but I've seen one of his films, and I know that he did a documentary on Mick Jagger. That's what I got. And I know he's Scottish. That's what I got to work with. And I'm thinking, dude, you can do this. Don't freak out. You know, if you don't get a full hour, it's okay. You just play it straight. Be respectful. And, and, and you know, maybe he's not going to notice. That was my play. So I bring Kevin MacDonald in. And the first thing he sees is I got this large Gimme Shelter poster. Uh, the Rolling Stones Gimme Shelter. The Maisel's brothers, 
You know, they're documentarians. I knew he was a documentarian. Okay, so we're off. We're off. We're off, you know, on Jagger, because he made a, a doc on Jagger. I'm like, great. Let's just, in my mind, I'm like, let's just stay in this and anything but the movie he's plugging for as long as possible. Because this is interesting stuff, and uh, maybe I'll get to know him, and things will evolve. So let's go now to my completely spontaneous interview. Spontaneous, not in the way that you... I know I pay a lot of lip service to not preparing that much, but generally, I have a sense of the person I'm about to talk to. I do a little bit of overview stuff, or I appreciate their work. I had none of that. So let's go now to me flying by the fucking seat of my pants with a complete stranger in my garage who is an Academy Award-winning director, Kevin MacDonald. Kevin McDonald. Okay. You've made some pretty dark movies. <laughs> <laughs> Is that my reputation? I hope not. No, I know. I know. But I, I mean, I haven't seen a, a ton of them, but The Last King of Scotland was heavy. Yeah, it's a heavy film. Life yeah. is heavy. I, you don't have to tell me, man. <laughs> you thought you're preaching to the choir on that one. But uh, where did you grow up exactly? I grew up in Scotland, in yeah. uh, the countryside, north of Glasgow, near Loch Lomond. The yeah. famous song, the Bonnie Bonnie Banks of Loch Lomond. Do you know that song? Well, I, I don't know how famous it is here, but That's I'll, a very I'll roll famous with song. I'll, I'll roll with you. <laughs> so um, when when you first uh, when you first started doing movies, I, you wh- when did you like? You told me you like give me shelter. Yeah. What well, I started there? making documentaries. I, I start. I, I wanted to be a journalist, and then um, I couldn't get a job as a journalist when I had graduated from college. And I started just for fun, being unemployed, making little documentaries on a home video camera right? with my brother. Yeah. And uh, one of those got seen then one day by somebody at the BBC, you know, the yeah, broadcaster yeah. in the UK, the public broadcaster. And they commissioned us to do a little five minute thing. And then that developed into something. How else. old so were you? In my early 20s. Oh, so it wasn't like you were like a 15 year old. No, <laughs> I wasn't a prodigy, not a documentary <laughs> prodigy. So then, and then I, and then I, I got really into the documentary and I, I made quite a few of them and, um, uh, uh, started getting interested in feature feature documentaries, so I made I made uh, sort of made three or four of those sort of you know for, for the theater. What hopefully. was the first one you did? Well, um, well, the, the first one I did was a very small one called um, "The Ultimate Performance," and it was about a, f- a filmmaker, painter, poet, seer, sage called um, Donald Camel, who is oh, best yeah. known for uh, being the co-director of a film called "Performance" with. Mick Jagger. Mick Jagger. That's a, that's a crazy movie. It's a really crazy movie. He was a crazy, crazy guy. He was the guy who taught, according to legend, taught Mick Jagger how to dance. You know, and he was, I heard it was Tina Turner. Uh, no, I don't think so. No, oh, really? It's well, he's the, and he's the guy who introduced all the Stones into the world of kind of uh, high society London. Oh, and right. He was kind of a Late posh 60s. guy. Yeah, yeah mid-60s. Mid-60s. And took them to Morocco and introduced them to drugs and all of that kind of stuff. That's he was the guy? He a cool guy. And he ended up in, he ended up blowing his brains out in uh, in the Hollywood Hills um, in really? like 1996. And so I made a film about him. He was a peculiar, interesting what's it, character. What's it called? Uh, it's called The Ultimate Performance. Is and it available? I don't think so, no. Oh my God! So Everyone wants to see it. They can get in touch with me. But then I made a film. Then I made a film, which was the film that got me kind of noticed, which won the Oscar for best documentary in '99, which was called One Day in September, which is a film about the Munich Olympic Games massacre, and it was a kind of investigative film. Kind of, I, we called it a thriller documentary. It was a documentary 
which was an investigation and a kind of detective story and and cut and cut to music and in a way a bit like a, a little bit like a thriller very influenced by jfk the uh-huh. Stone, oliver stone movie yeah right which and is not a documentary which is not a documentary <laughs> very <laughs> definitely not so this was a this was the documentary version though. of that and it was compelling i think and it, and, and it won the, oh, lots of awards and that was the thing that got me going and then i made another film called touching the void which is a mountain climbing film which is a great great story about survival really. so you were so you were able to actually pursue journalism despite the fact yeah that- exactly despite the fact nobody would give me a job i had to do my job my find my job myself like you here yeah exactly in your podcast well what's i mean tell me about this I, i'm a little fascinated with this guy donald camel i mean i know it's not your job to tell me uh you, you know his life but um what was it that fascinated you about him? I mean, because this is sort of a very specific Well, character. I don't know if you remember the film Performance. I but do. It's a really fascinating, extraordinary, weird, weird film. Very. And uh, it always really interested me. And it, one of the aspects of that film is that the character played, he's uh, called Turner, played by Mick Jagger, ends up killing himself. And you see this bullet's eye view as it goes into his brain. I, I should remember that. And... Um, what caught my imagination was when he died, when Camel died. I mean, this is a dark story, talking yeah. about dark stories. When he died here in Los Angeles, and he hadn't made a film for a few years, and he, um, I think, was creatively unsatisfied, and he killed himself in the same way as, as the character in performance had. And he had studied how to shoot himself in such a way that he would slowly bleed to death and have a supposedly ecstatic experience during his death. There's apparently a spot, if you hit it, with the bullet, you're going to have a got to be a real marksman. You're going to have a pleasurable, <laughs> a spe- a pleasurable experience. It's a specific type of marksman. And he's a guy who always had he always had a fascination with guns and a fascination. He wanted to kill himself from his early age, and he waited till he was sixty or something. But uh, he was friendly with Marlon Brando. He was uh, say, lived up in the canyon. Day. Yeah, he was. He um, uh, he's just one of those guys who was had a finger in every kind of pie, every situation. Very well, very curious, in u- unusual, interesting. He made a film called Demon Seed with Julie Christie in the seventies. Oh, yeah, yeah. Do you remember that? Is that his movie? That's his movie. Yeah. Um, Do you think he might have been Satan? He certainly was fascinated by <laughs> Satan because <laughs> it seemed like you know, when, as you talk about all the pivotal parts of his life, that it seems like it seemed like his job was to move things into, uh, you know, certainly the. Uh, the Bacchanalian. Well, yeah. Do you know? I don't know if you know who Alistair Crowley is. I do, sure. So, well, Alistair Crowley. Do what was, thou will. Yeah, Alistair Crowley was his godfather, and uh, his father, yeah. Donald's father, wrote the first biography of Alistair Crowley, who was his and father? was a great, great friend. His father was a um, at one side the richest man in England, and he owned the biggest uh, shipping and um, sort of. Um, uh, coach works, you know, bus and trains yeah, yeah, yeah. they made and stuff like that, and ships called Camel Laird. Yeah, uh, and then in the in the great crash of twenty nine, he lost practically all the money. Right, and there's photos of him with like literally nineteen Rolls Royces outside his house. Right, right, so, yeah. and then he pretty much lost everything. And then he became very interested in the occult and in in Crowley. Got to save yourself befriended, somehow. Befriended, befriended Crowley. <laughs> right, and. Uh, yeah, so he, was, he, he so he was born into it. He was born into devil worship, right? But well, interesting guy. Yeah, Crowley's an interesting guy, and uh, mm-hmm. as well, I can't. I never was able to really wrap my brain around it or make it work for me. Yeah, there's, there's something you know. Some people's lives, when you look at them, and one of the things I love about doing documentaries about people, about you know, biographical things, is that there seems to be a kind of almost fictional, fiction-like um, kind of. Um, poetry to what happens in their lives and, and uh, things that that connect up as though they'd been written by somebody so in his case one of the things that interested me was that he was born in edinburgh um 
in an ancient building, in a tower, yeah. in the Royal Mile of Edinburgh, right. which is called um, the Outlook Tower. Yeah. And he died here in Los Angeles on Lookout Mountain. <laughs> and I thought, that is weird. And he, and he, pre- <laughs> and he prophesies his own suicide. And he prophesies his own suicide in this, in this movie that he made, the great, which, is a, which is one of the great kind of 60s weirdy movies. It is. I, I don't uh, understand that movie. Who's the British lead? Who's the lead in that? What's this guy's name again? Uh, there's uh, uh, James Fox. James Fox. And he lost his mind making the movie. He, he did? He lost his mind. And so that was another aspect of the documentary. Which Why isn't this documentary available? I know we're plugging another movie, but <laughs> I, I, I need this documentary. Well, look, you know what? I'm going to send you a DVD of it. Will you? Um, yeah, I should make it available. It's, um, yeah, he, he um, it's, it's, a, it's a really weird, interesting strange story is all I saying. And that was your first documentary. That was that my was first feature big documentary. I made, I made things for TV before that. Um, you, look like you're, you look like you're 25 years old. Oh, thank you. I, I moisturize. <laughs> um, I, uh, um, so I made, yeah, I made that in 96 or something like that and then, um, and then made uh, uh, One Day in September and various other documentaries and um, one of them which was called Touching the Void which is about mountain, mountain climbers yeah. uh, made a lot of money. And because it made a lot of money, um, somebody asked me if I wanted to make a feature film, a drama film with actors. And I thought, oh, why not? I might get another get an opportunity. So I made a film that was The Last King of Scotland. And then since then, I've kind of alternated between doing fiction films and doing documentary films. I kind of right. do, 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 do both. Well, it seems like I see now that not only do you like this movie, Gimme Shelter, but you're, you're a Stones guy. You did, you did. I made a film. I made a film with Mick Jagger. Yeah. Which was an experience. <laughs> what did you, how, what did you do? Well, I made this very heavy documentary about the uh, the, the, the the Munich Olympic Games right. massacre. Right. And uh, when the movie came out, it was really controversial with the Germans, with the Palestinians, with the what Israelis. Was the, what was the flack? What was the backlash? Oh, I got, you know, I got Israelis writing articles about how it was pro-Palestinian. I got Palestinians writing articles saying it was, you know, pro-Israeli. And Did you have an agenda? Phoned up and abused. I had no agenda. I wanted to tell a great story. You really and had, you didn't think about those things? No. Obviously, you think about them, but... I think you know anyone who's been involved with anything to do with Arab-Israeli question knows that <laughs> you, can, you know you cannot you cannot win yeah, and steer clear. Yeah, that's right. Anyway, so I was probably a bit naive to be honest. Anyway, so I I um uh I'd made that and then I got phoned up and you know I just won the Oscar for the documentary and Mick Jagger phones me up and says are you interested? I'd met him because I was making the Donald Camel film. I'd interviewed him and I sure. met him briefly. And he phoned me. I, I want to make a film about yeah. myself. He said. And I was thinking, that sounds like the most frivolous, fun thing you could ever possibly do. I'm going to yeah. do that yeah. instead of you know doing something where I get shouted at by Israelis. Right. And um, and so I, um, I I I spent a great six months touring the world with a little camera with Mick Jagger in the back of his car, flying around with him, going to I all sorts of places. That, yeah. It didn't turn out to be a great documentary. It was a great life experience. Though. No, no stones, though. Just Mick. Yeah, a little bit of the other stones. A little they you know, appeared briefly in it, but uh, it was mostly about Mick. It was kind of, you know, it was called being Mick, and it was sort of trying to be inside his head, sort of live life, see how someone like that actually lives their life mm-hmm. from the inside. And um, you know, it was it was a pretty fascinating experience. What did you learn about Mick Jagger? I learned that he, it's very very hard to get inside his head actually it is, right he's incredibly secretive i think when you've been when you've been in the public eye and one of the most recognizable faces on the planet for 50 years yeah. nigh on 50 years right now, you know you're you have so many layers of protection it's very hard to 
get at. I'm not even sure he knows who the real Mick Jagger is anymore. In a way, it's so hidden and so deep down. He's a very pleasant guy to hang around, and and you know, very um, uh, very affable and friendly, and you know. I stayed in his house, his, his chateau in the Loire Valley. I was there when 9-11 happened. We watched 9-11 the towers come down together. You and Mick Jagger. Mick, Mick and his dressing gown. Oh, my God. Yeah. yeah so, that, so I, you know, I have so many amazing memories of, of people I met and places I went with him. It was, it was, it was extraordinary. But you didn't, you felt but like. the you, film, I never, I never found him. Right. And it was you, frustrating. Yeah, well, you were not. Did you say that in the movie? You couldn't really, because he was sort of. No, I couldn't really. I couldn't. Kinda... I couldn't really. I couldn't really. Um, but uh, but yeah, that was the that was the truth. The thing about him is, you see, that he wants to. He want, He's he has fun all the time. It's kind of like he's still living the rock and roll lifestyle. He's just jet 70. setting around. He's going to parties, uh-huh. hanging out with beautiful girls. You know. Well, that's doing good. Yeah, he's having he's having fun. He's loving it. But I sort of think if I'd been doing it for fifty years, I'd be thinking, you know what? I'm not that interested in reading J Lo. Yeah, tonight. You think that you, so? You think there's something in there? Some some lonely man, maybe? Well, or... you know, who am I to to, sure. to, to 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 to? But I've got my theories. Yeah. No, I mean, I think I think, you know, you've got to be. I mean, are you running away from something or are you running towards something? Well, I think I he. We're, we're, if he's running towards something, he's there. <laughs> you, know, you, you, know, you would think so. <laughs> he's know. a fascinating. He's a fasc, He's a fascinating guy, and. Um, in real life, quite con- quite conservative, you know. I would uh, that I believe. He's he, you know. I remember, you know, on the plane, he would get out his copy of Foreign Affairs magazine. Which oh was my kind god! Of something, you know, like that's high high level, <laughs> which is like real highbrow kind of policy stuff. Yeah, and he's yeah. sitting there reading yeah, about yeah. the Syrian question. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's kind of quite unexpected. Well, I guess if you're like you know a billionaire or half a billionaire, yeah. you have some social responsibility to 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 sort of see how the world is running. You're yeah, you're, he's very interested. You know, he's interested in the world, and I think. That's something that I think all, a lot of the really successful performers that I've met uh-huh. have in common, which is, you know, whether they be actors or musicians, is that they're actually really interested in the world. Yeah. They're not living in a complete bubble, you know. Right. They, well, then, so he's not completely uh, infantile in his rock and no, roll. No, no, no. Did you ever not. read that uh, the book uh, about Dean Martin by Nick Toshis called mm-hmm. Dino? No, no. Well, that, well, that's sort of interesting examination of... of having the, fun all the time. Well, having fun all the time, but like never, not being accessible. And, you know, the supposition is, you know, either there's nothing in there or there's just, a, you know, an isolated man inside there somehow. Yes. Yes. Yeah, I, I, you know. Well, that's that's the yeah, that's the question I suppose that, I suppose that this that that this that this film asks in a very oblique way. Do you prefer documentary over over a narrative? Or? No, I, I, you know what, I really genuinely love both in different in different ways, and uh, it's, it's something like a palate cleanser after you've done a fictional film, a dramatic film, and you know all the problems associated with that, all the money, all the studio stuff, and then to go and do a documentary where you don't have to answer to anyone in a way, and it's low key and. That's that's it's it's really fun and also just engage back again with real with real life and real people. You know, moving from uh, you know a documentary sensibility into a basically a, you know a, a sort of over the top biopic, but a biopic, mm-hmm. it's sort of tricky, isn't it? Were, were you concerned in in sort of capturing? I guess nobody has a real point of reference for Idi Amin in the way that's sort of like that. He's not like him. Well, the thing is, it's it's heightened. It's definitely right. heightened, but it's not as heightened as you'd think. Um, one of the sort of best decisions I ever made yeah. when doing that film was to film it in Uganda, in the country where it happened, where you know where where Amin was the the, the, the dictator, and that meant that we met so many people who yeah. had 
worked with him, who had suffered under his hands, whose family had been killed, whatever, all these things. And we even had people on our crew, on the film crew. We hired local people, you know, local electricians who'd never been in a film before mm-hmm. came in and were electricians on our film. We, we hired local hairdressers. And the people on the film who were working on it had known Amin and had suffered at Amin's right. hands. So they were able to say to us, they would say, no, it's, that's not right. He wouldn't say that. He would say it like this. And that was incredibly good. And also Forrest Whitaker was so committed to the part. He came out a month before to Uganda, before we started shooting. To kill people? Uh, to learn how to kill people. <laughs> now he came out and he was, he was, um, he was uh, uh, you know, eating only Ugandan food, hanging out with Ugandans, learning some of the languages or bits of the languages that Amin spoke, the tribal languages. And um, he got so inside his head yeah. and so, em- so empathized with him. That I remember one day we were taking a taxi together yeah. just before we started shooting. We might have just started shooting. And we were, we were going to, out to dinner and um, Forrest was telling me how wonderful in the back of the taxi, how wonderful Lydia Amin was and how, um, you know, he was misunderstood. <laughs> oh, no. And uh, the taxi driver stops the taxi and goes, <laughs> yeah. look, I'm sorry. I can't let you t- talk like this. You know, my, you know, my parents were both killed by Amin. I was left as a baby you know, to cry in the dust of my village on my own. And oh I was rescued God. by someone. And I hear you talking like this. You know, I just, I can't, I can't take it. And so um, Forrest and I went, oh, God, it's a bit embarrassing. And got out of the taxi. And, uh, and Forrest, we're walking down the street. And he says, turns to me, because do, do you trust that guy? I mean, he was a baby after all. How does he know? I mean, killed his Oh, my parents? God. <laughs> so that's the level of empathy that he managed to oh reach. Oh, my God. Were you concerned at that point? <laughs> Well, I, remember, I talked to Forrest's wife afterwards, who was more concerned. I think she said I, I had to stop talking to him on the phone because he would phone me up as Idi Amin, and uh, it took him a long time to come out of it. Really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. all right. So now, th- this new movie, I- I'm assuming, is sort of a it's a departure for you in that it seems like you're focused on somewhat appealing to to younger people and making a, a large movie. Well, it's not a large movie. It's 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 quite a small movie in a way. It's, it's an independent movie, um, and it's based on a young adult book. Well, there you go. And uh, <laughs> yeah. so, yes, it is. It is. Well, I mean, it's odd. The book, because the book, it's called How I Live Now. Um, and the book came out in like 2002 or 2003 in Britain and has become a kind of bit of a classic in that in that teen kind of young adult world. But um, it was a book which appealed to adults as well as sure. the teen market. Right. They, they published an edition of it with an adult cover and all that. It, it's So it's a kind of crossover crossover book. And that's one of the things I I, I liked about it. So... But it is a, the cast is entirely kids and teenagers. There's a kind of like the, the an adult, a couple of adults in it that have like a day or two of filming in it. But most for the most part, it's and it's a, like it's, a rites of passage love story. It's a right. It's a it's a it's a it's a love story, but it's a love story which is very very unconventional because it, it's a love story, and you think, okay, this is this is um, I see where this is going. She's going to be, you know, she's going to be transformed by love. Then halfway through the movie, yeah, it takes a radical left turn, and and the third world war breaks out and wow. uh it becomes a very different kind of film and quite a quite a um a kind of a dark th- dystopian thriller i suppose and the, the two the boy and the girl are separated the girl has her young cousin with her who's 10 years old and the two of them have to sort of find their way back across the english countryside in war to f- get back together with the boy and so it's it's a film about the teen experience and about love but it's quite an adult film well, yeah, it sounds heavy, but it's it's interesting because it's also a film that could have been, you know, set in a reality of World War Two. Exactly, like. it is, and I think, you know, it's um, uh, it's interesting to me why why these sort of stories of of apocalypse, of dystopia, why why are those these things so popular at the moment? Why do you think that why is? Why are we harking back so much to 
that kind of World War II experiences. I think, I think because we live in an age of anxiety, you know, we're all kind of constantly. We want some kind of closure. Well, no, we're ner- we're nervous. We're sure. constantly nervous because because we're we're told anyway by the media that we're under constant threat of of you know being blown up or or of um, you know the financial system collapsing and we're you right. know was it we're we're six hot meals from from apocalypse or whatever the saying is and and um, that I think pervades people's mentality these days. I think we're all very neurotic and 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 paranoid about you know you know is that person sitting next to me on the plane and they're going to blow it up. So you and think, I think that and I think that I'm, I suppose we're all in our in in art we're key, we're sort of relating to that general sense of anxiety that there is in society. Well, what's interesting to me is that. E- 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 that makes sense to me because even with like the the Walking Dead or these zombie movies, yeah. I think that in in the type of fear you're talking about, which yeah. is fairly unique, because we're talking about a generation that has not seen real warfare or had to deal with yeah. you know cities of rubble in Europe like they did in World War II. That like it almost it's almost feeling the place that comedy used to. There's a relief to it that you know when you're in that much stress. And you see, you know, human spirit transcending these apocalyptic scenarios. You know, it's sort of like... Oh, I yeah. think that's so true. And I think also, I mean, it's interesting because when I made this film about mountain climbers, high altitude mountain climbers called uh-huh. Touching the Void, I, one of the questions I kept asking myself is, why do people do this? Because I went up in the mountains in the, in the, in the, him, in the Andes, uh-huh. um, up pretty high and, and you know, re- told this story. And um, it's so unpleasant up there. It's just no fun being at high altitude. Can't Your breathe. nails are falling out. You're teeth fall out you can't breathe you can't piss it's just horrible and i think why do people do this one of the theories i came up with was that they people do it because you know their parents generation went through so much they they, you know they went through the war right and you know here in america they went through the korean war and the vietnam war but the younger generation who didn't have that sort of feel inadequate in some way and feel they want to find a way to test themselves yeah where's the where's where's my fight exactly and we have to create those fights so that's why people do these crazy marathons where they you know run for three days and all that stuff it's some sort of testing yourself so anyway that's one theory anyway one no but i think it's interesting because i you know the, the the primary difference between america and and most of the world in relation to these wars is they weren't here i mean you know in britain i mean there were people your grandparents generation mm. you had to climb out of rubble and and, mm-hmm. and hang out in sewers not mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. get destroyed yeah in some way we want to test ourselves and see whether could you know could we survive yeah would we survive but i think it also is about the culture we live in is a paranoid culture you know in the 70s there was that all that sort of series of american films the sort of parallax view and all those sort of things manchurian, kind of, oh yeah parallax manchurian view, right? canada all those earlier. paranoid yeah. films yeah but the, but the, but i think that comes out of the cold war and out of a feeling of you know who can you trust being spied on right and also of you know we may be destroyed at any moment um by a specific entity by a specific entity which is i think less frightening but it did make it, it was still i remember growing up and having to at school go and do sort of duck and cover practice and all this stuff right. and being told you sure. know this is what you do in, in the event of emergency of a bomb you'll have six minutes yeah 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 and all this yeah, stuff yeah. and when you're a kid that's frightening to be told that this could happen today it's not as specific it's much and i think therefore it's more frightening there's a sort of ambiguity around yeah, it could it. be that guy it's not the russian could Russians. be him yeah. and i don't understand why he wants to kill me but he yeah. wants to kill me right so that's that's really frightening i think that i think that permeates society everything i think that permeates everything that's what this this book that how i live now and what the, the film of the book is i think keying into i wanted to make a film which was about kind of how children see conflict and how children see war and the kind of you think that that's going to be 
an entirely terrifying negative thing and that you know children are going to be traumatized and but actually i think what happens in war is that kids can actually find you know normality in it and kind of magic in it the happiest time for the kids is when you know the w- the world around them is collapsing and the nuclear bomb has gone off in london and the chaos is reigning and the apocalypse is coming and they're on their own in the countryside living in this farmhouse in my film and and they're falling in love and having a great time and there's that idea of the freedom that warfare gives you as well. There's a great movie by John Borman called um, Hope and Glory, which is a really autobiographical movie about him growing up during the war in London. Mm-hmm. And in that movie, it ends with his school being destroyed by a bomb. And you'd think that would be a terrible thing, but all the kids turn up and they're like throwing their books in the air, like, yes, thank you, Mr. Hitler. Right. No more school. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, it's, it's also interesting, too, because they can't really contextualize it in. in no, it in becomes broad, normality. Yeah, in a broad sense. Like, you know, the implications of it immediately are different. But also, I, the interesting thing for me about all those films is that they, the because they're from a kid's point of view, they don't try and make sense of things. And I think that what happens in war is that things cease to make sense. You can't really understand why that person's doing this and why this person survives and that person doesn't. And none of it really makes sense. Right. And kids just accept that. They accept the world that's around them. I think later on in life, you start to you know make sense and look at the geopolitical situation. But when you're younger, you don't. Yeah, and maybe as you get older, you might sense that there was trauma, but at the moment, it doesn't feel like that. Yeah, exactly. Well, I'm, I'm excited, and uh, I'm glad you came by. I think this went well. You? Yeah, that was fun. Thank you. Nice to talk to you. I I, I, feel, I need to go back to bed now. You do? <laughs> wait, wait, how long are you in town for? I'm here till Friday, actually. Well, I'm glad we, I'm glad we got a uh, chance to chat. Thanks for coming in, Kevin. Thank you. All right. So that, that went okay. Okay, that, you know, we, quite frankly, it was a good interview. It was probably longer than the interviews he was used to doing. He didn't uh, know, seem to know my show, so it was fine. I think he left you know, feeling like, all right, well, I'm glad we did that. Now, granted, this the movie, How I Live Now, is, has probably been out and is already gone, but that, whatever. You, I mean, it, it is what it is. The problem with it is, is that I couldn't release that interview as it is. Do you understand? There was no releasing that. And in my mind, because it was too short, it wasn't a, a full-length WTF. So my mind is like, there's only one way to release this, and that's to track down the Kevin McDonald that I thought I was going to interview, and and do that, you know, and put and, and release them together. All right, so here's what I do. I contact Kids in the Hall, Kevin McDonald. I have his email because I believe we'd reached out to him before, and I tell him what happened. I said, uh, dude, uh, I thought I had you booked, but I had the Scottish film director, Kevin McDonald, booked, and uh, had a very uh, tense conversation with him and i want to interview you and i'd like to I'd, I'd i'd like to to perhaps release them together he's like dude that's happened before uh but it was a it was a, a more harrowing story we do talk about it but it, i mean but it, it he has been confused with this kevin mcdonald before but thank god this is all fucking coincidence when i'm, I'm doing my dates at the Trippany house and I go on the schedule there, and it, and it turns out he's there for a night, so I know he's in town. So I scramble. I'm like, dude, we got to talk. We got to do this. I want to talk to you, and I want to, you know, kind of weave it into this other story. He's like, all right, well, I'm good. Just I'm here. Let's do it. So he did it. He took a car out here, and then, you know, we talked. And I, I love him. I, I, I think I think this is a, a very fun conversation, and, and he's a, a very sweet guy. And there's a lot of good kids in the hall stuff in here in this talk. And then I drove him back. I drove him back to where he was staying, and uh, but a really sweet guy. So, so here is me talking to 
The person I thought I was going to talk to initially, uh, kids in the hall, uh, Kevin McDonald. Kevin McDonald. Hey. How old are you? Are we the same age? I'm 52. I'm 50. I, uh, I'm 52. You're 52. <laughs> 52. How's it feeling? Um, well, I'm lucky enough that I'm childish enough that, uh, that you feel young. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, it's starting to, uh, like, I starting to get them aware of it. Uh, like in the old days when I go, oh, that's an old person. Yeah. And then I say, oh, they're 12 years younger than me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. Because I still have my young eyes. Yeah. Uh, I still think that, I still think I'm the young guy. Yeah. But, uh, but, uh, it's weird when you start to look in the mirror and start going like, oh, it's happening. It's happening. It's happening. And if I think the word nap one more time. You do, do you nap? <laughs> I don't. I just think it. Oh, yeah. Nap would be nice. Yeah. <laughs> do you have children, though? Uh, well, uh, uh, my girlfriend uh, has two kids that we all live together. Oh, okay. Up in Winnipeg. Yeah, so you're, I, that's right. You're, no, you're in LA. You don't have a car. You don't rent a car. Is this the interview we started? Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, excellent. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I have a car in Winnipeg. Uh, but you didn't want to rent one here, or is it a pain in the ass? Or? Um, I just thought the, the, that I uh, the, that I was in a place where I could walk to everything, and then uh, this wonderful show happened. Uh, though in, uh, in Winnipeg, uh, I'm not a strong driver, and it's ice. We just broke the record. We, I'm saying yeah. we. No, be, be a team. Thank you, Winnipeg. <laughs> I, please allow me to be a we. Uh, uh, and uh, what, what uh, record did you break? They, uh, they, we. Sorry, I broke the record for the most days in a row, the 30 below. I think. Look, I was up there briefly that one time when I saw you up there for that comedy festival. We, I met her. Uh, you were there at the party where I met uh, Paula. Really? Yeah, you were at the party. Yeah. Maybe I did. I have anything to do with it? Uh, well, Maybe my presence shifted. In a way, and... I was talking to her first. You came and I said, "Mark, Paula, Paula, Mark," and, the, uh, yeah. and that's where it all turned around <laughs> for you. Right, that's right. Oh, that's sweet that you met somebody at least in town. Yeah, <laughs> in town, <laughs> in town of Winnipeg. Uh, when I drive, though, uh, a lot of people honk and complain because I, I go too slow. And then uh, you nervous driver. I'm a nervous driver, and then I open the window and I say, "Hey, I was nominated for three Emmys," which doesn't really help. <laughs> it just doesn't help. <laughs> like that'll give you a pass. Uh, yeah, it's me from <laughs> the thing. <laughs> I had a show in the nineties. <laughs> in the nineties. <laughs> yeah, remember the nineties? <laughs> I had a show. <laughs> that doesn't help out, huh? It doesn't help a lot. Did you grow up in Winnipeg? Why would you stay there? No, uh, I don't want to be condescending. All right, I know that there's culture and lovely people in Winnipeg's Winnipeg. Ama- Winnipeg's an amazing arts place. Uh, Guy Madden, the director, John Pays, art scene, d- dance. Uh, Paula's a dancer. Uh, amazing. D- what kind um, of dancer is your girlfriend? Modern dance. I just saw some modern dance. Oh, there. Uh, well, there you go. How, how do you feel about modern dance? I mean, I love it. To me, it's like sketch comedy without the comedy part. Uh, it's like ideas. It's uh-huh. a, it's a, it's a physical movement manifestation of ideas. That who's ever choreographing? Paula's an excellent choreographer. I can't pronounce the word choreographer choreographer sure choreographer yeah why not uh, uh, and um, uh, she has brilliant ideas yeah. uh, and the best thing I have great ideas and then it's it's shown in movement and you like you feel something and it, I like I think oh um, that was like a John Lennon song I felt this no I had that experience I mean I had the experience when I was watching it where I was feeling emotions and like actually teared up uh, with no but I'll tear up generally if there's a lot of people on stage doing something in unison like a, a musical or so if there's a lot of people singing on stage i'm fucked oh I yeah ju- yeah it just chokes me up I don't, I don't even know what it is i think it's just the- did your dad cry my dad cried and i'm f- finding i'm crying like my- i remember my dad crying in a dog food commercial and oh, yeah. uh, i'm sort of becoming that guy now your dad was a sensitive guy he was a very sensitive guy yeah i, I, I think my uh, dad used to cry sort of inappropriately 
Oh yeah. Yeah, I mean, my like dog food commercials, nice, you know. It, my, it, but my dad was, uh, you know, he would <laughs> get very depressed and cry. Uh, it sounds like your dad emoted, you know, in a, you know, not the right time, but at least <laughs> he was being triggered by something tangible. Yeah, yeah, he cried <laughs> when he was horrible to me. He didn't cry, uh-huh. <laughs> but he. Uh, how but he how cried. did that go? What did he, what was horrible? Uh, well, my dad, uh, as is uh, in my one man show that uh, the twelve people have seen it know, uh, was uh, like an alcoholic. An alcoholic, like an alcoholic? Yeah. Like an alcoholic. I'm sorry, I'm saying like, uh, he was an alcoholic uh, dental equipment salesman. An alcoholic dental equipment salesman. Like that's a Willie category under, <laughs> yeah. into itself. Yes, there is. He's yeah. number three on the list of uh, <laughs> alcoholic uh, dental what, uh, what did Willie Loman sell? I don't remember what he sold. Did they even say? I don't know if they did say. Now that's an I investigation. Forget. So you did a, uh, a, a one-man show called... Uh, called uh, Hammy and the Kids, Hammy being the nickname for my father, because his name is Hamilton, and the kids being the kids in the hall. It's about my 20s, um, when my dad was sort of living in the Salvation Army, and uh, the kids in the hall were like, um, this like the mid-80s, where we were actual kids struggling to become a, uh, a comedy troupe. Well, no, we were a comedy troupe. Wait, your dad was living in the Salvation Army? He did for a year. I make it sound, he did for a year, uh, where he lost everything. He moved into the Salvation Army. And uh, I remember telling me that he was sober that year, but the, his roommates were like drinking Drano and stuff like that. And so your dad, alcohol took him way down. Took him way down. Then he got back up again. Uh, and then he started drinking again, but it never got as bad. He just got a little cranky and miserable. So what you grew up with, with uh, erratic alcoholic behavior your whole life. Yes. How many siblings do you have? Uh, I have uh, one sibling, uh, a sister. Uh huh. So, like, from uh, do you now? Because like, there's a certain characteristics of people that grow up with that, with that weird kind of erratic, mm-hmm. emotional inconsistency. Yeah. Uh, did you find that you, you were you know sort of panicky? <laughs> oh yeah. L- like if someone just raises their voice, even if I overhear it, I sort of do this. I don't know. Yeah. I, I know oh, it's really? a radio show. I'm uh, put your hands up. I'm putting my hands covering. Yeah, protect my eyes. <laughs> For some reason, I'm obsessed with protecting my eyes. <laughs> You don't want to lose those. Hit me in the throat. But <laughs> <laughs> you don't want to lose your young eyes. Yeah, not my young eyes. When did you, what, 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 what was your mom's role in all this? Did she just put up with it? She, uh, yeah, I guess the myth that we created, the family myth was, uh, I don't really know what was like possessing her, what like, her demons were. Those, she was a wonderful woman, but the family myth was that she didn't move uh because she didn't want to hurt the kids. Like, yeah, um, sure. But I, I don't. Uh, now that I, I'm older and thinking about it, uh, I, don't, I don't really know why. Maybe she was too afraid to. Finally, we had no choice. Uh, when I was 19, I was about to go to college for acting. Um, my dad was so bad. We uh, moved to an apartment, but we didn't want to tell him to enrage him. So every night when he uh, collapsed on the stairs, we'd move a couple boxes at a time. We'd uh, step over him. And, oh, my uh, God. That's horrible. Yeah. <laughs> it's sad. It's funny. Yeah. I mean, I get it. It's, uh, but yeah. So he had gotten to the point where he couldn't function. He couldn't work. He couldn't. Yeah, that was when he hit bottom. And it was after that that uh, um, he woke up one day and realized we were gone. Uh, lost the house that we were living in and then ended up in the uh, Salvation Army. And that's when you were 19? I was, I was 19. Uh, going to college. Uh, How'd that play out for you, though? Were you an angry guy? Um, there's anger in me. Yeah. Uh, the, but, but you are uh, Canadian. But I am Canadian. 
So, good point. Because of that, it becomes uh, passive-aggressive. Exactly. I stay fully how passive-aggressive <laughs> Yeah, I had Dave in here. Dave, do you think it's a good idea if, uh, <laughs> knowing full well what I really think, do you think it's a good idea if we do that scene? No, I'm just asking. Uh, oh, you're that guy. Passive-aggressive question asker. <laughs> yeah. No, I'm fine. I'm good. If you want to do, no, no, no. We'll do, we'll do Sherlock Holmes. We'll do the Sherlock Holmes sketch. Sure. Oh, no, 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 I'm good. I'm just wanting to know you. You're good in doing it. You're good? Okay. Okay, good. We'll do it. Oh my God! So how did that dynamic play out with the rest of the guys? Because I, <laughs> I mean, I know Dave. He was on my TV show, and he did a, a very uh, touching WTF in here with about his his marriage. It's and, one of your most famous uh, broadcasts, I would think. What's well, a big one because it got a lot, it got him a lot of attention, I think, in Canada uh, of of his plight at the yes. time. And I think seem it seems like things have eased up for him since then. Yeah, and I, I think in a way because he shut it all out here. Right. Uh, I think uh, like in a spiritual way, if you uh, we can be spiritual for a second. I think that uh, he opened the door for things getting a, a little better. Like we all knew, of course, but no one else knew. And so they, they came. And I think uh, almost uh, in the past five years, that's the most famous Kid in the Hall thing that's happened. Uh, is is your that show. horrible? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> your show. They hit David being on your show. That's really? The thing I hear, yeah. You're all okay with each other? You talk to each other? Yeah. Yeah. We get along um, uh, really well now because uh, can I say swear words? In yeah. This? Because... Uh, I love Camper Van Beethoven. Remember them? I love them. Yeah, I love them. I love them. I, I love them. And uh, when they had to come back a few years ago, the, I think they were famous for fighting. And they asked the violinist, I'm sorry, I forget his name. Uh, uh, Siegel? Is it? That's it. That's yeah. it. Jonathan Siegel? I think it's Jonathan Siegel, actually. Yeah. That's totally it. And they said, do you guys fight anymore? So well, we're in our 40s now. Uh, when you're in your 20s and you work together, it's your job to be an asshole. Yeah. But uh, but when you're 40s, you have to sort of concentrate more on the work and um, and things. The kitchen hall, we are we were sort of friends first, and we're like brothers, but not in the hokey sense because brothers fight. Yeah. Uh, right, but brothers will always fight somebody else for you. It's uh, it's like you a guys, complicated thing, bro. You didn't fight that much as a group. We like we fought a lot. Uh, I regret the first year of the kitchen hall show because. You think that you're about to be canceled any second? Right, in, when you were just in Canada. When we were just in Canada, yeah. the, uh, the first year of our show. Because like a lot Toronto. of things only last a couple of seasons, right? Exactly. So you become an individualistic. You become individualistic for a second, and you fight for your scenes more than. So you, you have, have a career after. Picture. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think it was subconscious in all our parts. But, yeah. but that's what you're doing. Uh, no, my scene, Billy Dreamer, is the scene that should be in this. Like, and, uh, <laughs> yeah. That's an actual fight I had, a scene called Billy Dreamer. <laughs> I did, did that make the cut? It did make the cut. I'm it trying did. to remember the, the sketch. It's sort of like, uh, you know, Billy Liar, like, yeah. uh, where I fan is, it's a, when I think about it, it's comedy A1, but I was in my mid-twenties, it was uh, where I, uh, I'm an office guy and I dream, I have dreams, but instead of big dreams, they're, they're, my life's only a little bit better. <laughs> <laughs> like my desk is slightly bigger <laughs> yeah but you and dave get along good dave and i are best friends we were the uh, first best friends of the troop and uh and i Wasn't think there's some uh like a uh, mix and match with uh women at some point too did dave say that yeah <laughs> uh yeah there was like in any group it's like uh like uh, i can't remember what it was it. i can't either <laughs> so it was, was it your girlfriend that went with him and then went well uh, yeah at first uh yeah dave and then uh and then eventually we started dating not oh. dave and i oh oh well that's good that'd be big news uh, that'd be big. this would be the biggest the new biggest kids that would be like yeah i'm trying for that i want this show to be uh to open my life up the way that dave did <laughs> dave i'm in love with you <laughs> Finally, <laughs> Finally the, the word is out. Yes. 
But McKinney seems like kind of the wild card. He's an oddball. <laughs> well, uh, because he's a brilliant character comic, right? Yeah. And he, the way he seems like an oddball is because like the way that Peter Sellers was. Right. Or I have no idea because I don't know him, uh, but the way that Christopher Guest might be. Sure. Uh, anyone who, uh, and these are like my favorite kind of comic actors. For some reason, my favorite kind of comic actors is, a, is always the kind of people that do things that I can't do. Right. But um, I think with Peter Sellers, uh, he sometimes people have trouble finding the real Peter Sellers. Sure. And um, uh, I think that's the, what happens. Oh, with, similar with Mark? Well, uh, when we all, and I love Mark, and he's uh, my favorite uh, actor of the group. Um, we always had a little trouble when we had to play ourselves in a scene. Uh-huh. Like, he, he wasn't quite sure how to do it. <laughs> oh, interesting. And Bruce seems pretty solid. Bruce is very solid. <laughs> like that, he seems like a, a grounded, consistent little fellow. He is. Uh, if, if Mark is the best actor of the troupe, uh, Bruce is the best writer. Yeah? Yeah. And what, do you, you, what were you the best at? I think, like, Dave is the best at jokes. Scott is the best at his uh, personality, sort of, like, got the group, like, known. Because we were, we were just four of us, and we were, like, being funny at the back of the stage, and no one can hear us. And Scott, for Scott's personality, it's like, there's no one I know. I once heard uh, Julia Ramone say, there's no one I know like Dee Dee Ramone. Yeah. Um, there's no one I know like Scott Thompson. And I, uh, um, and I think we wouldn't have got famous without Scott Thompson. Uh, everyone is good at something. I think I'm just good at... Just generally being funny. Uh-huh. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. There's the, like, it's vague. Yeah, I think yeah. my gift is vague. <laughs> Everyone else has a specific gift. Uh, but you had a kind of, in a lot of the uh, sketches, you had sort of a, a funny kind of floaty role in a way. Like yeah. there, there's something uniquely yours, but it, it's, uh, and you did, the, you did the girls pretty well. I did, but not as good as Dave. Yeah, yeah. Dave, uh, the first time we did it in uh, season one, before the crew knew who we were. Yeah. And Dave just came dressed as a prostitute, uh-huh. and, and our, uh, like the hooker characters that him and Scott did. Um, some crew guy asked him out, like a Friday. Come night. on, <laughs> he did. True story. <laughs> All right, so let's go. Let's go back then. So you you're grown up in this chaotic home of, of right. progressive alcoholism. Yes, and you go not progressive uh, rock. That would be a little. There was better. a little bit of progressive rock. Though. Well, like there was a rock Genesis was around back then. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I had were, a few Genesis covers. Where, and you, where'd you go to college? The Lamb lies down on Broad Humber College. I went for acting. Uh, it was a community college. Because um, my father went bankrupt, uh, we get a like um, a bank uh, a college grant. So uh, like I, I got paid for me, but I got kicked out after three months for being a one legged actor. What does that mean? Uh, that I could only do comedy. Oh, yeah. And the dean who kicked me out, he was actually a one-legged actor. A lighting grid had fallen on his leg uh, during a production of Pippin. And he, I remember him limping around the office telling me uh, that I was a one-legged actor. Is that true? A true story. Oh, my God. And wait, wait, this is interesting. Wait, wait a second. Um, the, uh, then as I was, as they told me that I was leaving after three months. I had to take three buses and two subways back to the suburbs of Toronto to tell my mother that I was like failing. But uh, my improv teacher ran after me. And he said that um, uh, that I was really good at improv, and he gave me the phone number to Second City, and that's how I got started and met Dave. But this is a mildly interesting, you're boring, which I am. The guy, uh, who his name is uh, the teacher, he was an actor, his name was William Davis, and he was the smoking man in The X-Files years uh-huh. later. Oh, really? Yeah. And that and that was the guy who led that's the you... guy who got me into like uh, the convinced me not to quit oh. and give me the phone number. So but... you you went to Second City in Toronto. Second City in Toronto, yeah. Who was I... there when you were there? Well, in the very first class uh, um, that I was in, I was nineteen. Everybody else was over thirty because they were actors, except for one kid who was seventeen. It was his first class, and his name was Mike Myers. Really, we were in our like first class together. I, I love that stuff because it's interesting with the Groundlings and with Second City in both Canada and in uh, Chicago. Just how many people were around, yeah. and how many people kind of 
you know, made it or stayed the course. I mean, I know a lot of people didn't, but there are. It's interesting yeah. that people. You like hearing that. I like hearing that. Uh, yeah, yeah. And when you met Dave, I mean, what, did you become friends immediately? Immediately. Come uh, on. I'm not even lying. Like, uh, like Mike, I knew that right away Mike Myers was probably funnier than me. I was like, uh, I, I'm sort of underconfident and an egomaniac at the same time. And, sure. I, and he was the first guy in my life that I thought was, uh, that could be possibly funnier than me. And I could see that he was brilliant right away. But Dave, I didn't think in terms of that. We just like... It was sort of like love at first sight in a way. Yeah. In the very first class, Dave, because Dave started a year later, so I'd been there for a year at Second City, and Mike Myers had already been discovered. He was already in the Second City at company. Yeah, he was so good. Usually you didn't get in until like 24 was the youngest, I think, before that, and he got in at 18. He was just so good. He was, like I was like raw potential. He, he came formed. As good as he is now, he was like that good back then. And wh- how did how did he shine? And did you guys? Do, so it's similar to the Second City in Chicago. There was a main stage, and they were yeah. The, so he was sort of company. the star of the main stage. He, uh, yeah, eventually, uh, like he had a complicated route. Like he did the touring company. He actually did a few Kitson Hall stage shows. Dave and I sort of wanted him in, but um, he's sort of smarter than us, more ambitious. He quit Second City, went to England. And did Malarkey and Myers uh, for a year, the, the economy thing. The, I didn't know that. Got very big. But then he wanted to come back home, so he went home and asked if he could uh, go to Chicago Second City. And he, he went right to main stage. Uh-huh. And then he got uh, discovered by Lauren Michaels. As did you later. Yeah, it happened in the same... T- this is... Uh, you're making me think of things that are interesting to me, but boring to people. But no, they're not. You'd be surprised. Uh, Lauren Michaels had us in the... His, uh, he flew us to New York, and we signed the papers to do our pilot. And then uh, we went in the hallway. We were like excited. The elevator doors open, and Mike Myers was coming. He said, "Guys, what are you doing here?" So well, we decided to do a pilot. He said, "What are you doing here?" Said, I'm talking, Lauren. I think he's going to hire me as a featured player in Saturday Night Live. That was the moment. That was yeah. That was like so weird that we had no idea that he was like uh, up for Saturday Night Live. We hadn't seen him for like a year because he was in Chicago. Yeah. Uh, wow, and he was there going there to meet Lauren? Yeah, he was. Uh, we were leaving, and he was coming to meet Lauren. That's amazing. Lauren was having his Toronto comic meeting. <laughs> his Canada <laughs> Day. His Canada Day. And he's from Toronto, of course. Yeah, he's a Canadian, and I didn't know till recently that he did perform comedy. Oh, yeah. Uh, he was. Uh, he had a CBC, you know CBC in Canada? Mm-hmm. He had a CBC show in the 60s. He had a comedy team. Uh, they were called Lauren and Hart, and it was yeah. called the Lauren and Hart Terrific Hour, and it was like pretty pretty hip like like it's sort of you see the seeds of Saturday Night Live, like the the early Saturday Night Live you, you really see the seeds I'm mildly obsessed with him yes I know that <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, we love him of course like yeah. he uh, I was a movie usher one day and then the next day I was calling in the movie uh, we were discovered um, and uh, the next day I was calling my movie theater saying oh, I have a phone meeting with Lauren Michaels and uh, like, like you were working as an usher in a movie theater during- Dave, Dave and I were movie ushers we were a stage troupe for a year the five of us had performed uh, our sketches we did new sketches well, every let's, Monday let's do it. okay so let's take it back so you meet Dave at, at meet Second Dave. City Dave at Second City you stayed in Second City how long? Uh, I was in Second City because then Dave and I stayed another year. I think we were there for two years. And then where did you meet the other guys? Because like our hope, we didn't like comedy and uh, sketch. We, we didn't want to be stand-ups. The Dave right. started like that. We wanted to be sketch comedy. It was only Second City. Right. That was the only thing. But we were uh, told that we were too weird for Second City. Right. So um, the very first workshop I met Dave, we were uh, right away. We were like supposed to do the mirror exercise together. And right away, we we sort of disrupted the class, and we ended up in the fetal position and rolling on the floor. And at the end of the class, I was sort of the funny guy in my improv, and he was in another group, and he was really funny. And I, I knew that that I could work with him and that he was funny. 
So I went to him and I said, um, I have a comedy troupe. Do you want to join it? I didn't know his name. I didn't have a comedy troupe. <laughs> and he said, yes. And then I called my friend Luch, Luciano Casimiro. He said, we got to start a comedy troupe because I have a guy that's perfect. Who was the guy you called? Luciano Casimiro, who's now like a writer. He was a, the, the original kids in the hall were Luch, uh, Dave Foley, and, uh, and myself. That was just three of you. It was just three of us. And yeah. that's when he started performing? That's when we started performing at a thing called Theater Sports in Toronto. Oh, they, that's an improv place. That's an improv place where you sort of compete against each other. And uh, we, that's where we started performing in front of, for the first time in front of paying audiences. They didn't really like us at Theater Sports because they cared more about the sports, about winning, but we would lose on purpose. Yeah. Was we, it improv-based completely? It was totally improv. And we would do, uh, you have to challenge the other team to games. And I remember once we did one game that after the show... We hid behind the curtains and people were complaining the kids and all can't do this. And what the game was, we challenged the other team to best scene until Kevin gets an asthma attack. Because I had asthma. So I, it's a big, it was a big theater at Harborfront. And I'd run around. The Dave and Luch would start a scene. I'd run around. And as soon as I started wheezing, they had to end the scene. And then I had to run around for the other team. But the joke was I was already wheezing. So as soon as I started, we had, they had to end it. So we'd always, <laughs> the joke was we'd always win. <laughs> but they complained that he's endangering his health. Oh, man, those babies. Right. Like we were, again, we were 16 when the Sex Pistols came out. Uh, so we sort of thought of ourselves, pretentiously or not, as like punk comics. Did, did you like the Sex Pistols when they came out? Oh, absolutely. And I, was, I, I always had enough of a history to know the two things were happening. That what they were saying I never heard before. It yeah. was revolutionary. But also, the music was like Chuck Berry. Yeah, oh yeah, it was just so, basic so rock and roll. It was basic rock and roll, a little yeah. quicker. Yeah. If you hear it now, it doesn't like it sounds slow, but it, like a little quicker. So it was the, the, both, the, best world, uh, the both the best worlds for me, that it was like just rock and roll, yeah. but they were saying things I never heard before. Yeah, I, I, I've been listening. I got that first Sex Pistols album in there, and I just got the, I got a Ramones, I got some Ramones. I've been listening to a lot of records lately, and it's interesting to listen to that stuff when we were kids. Yeah. That had such a profound impact, and to feel how small or how large it stays you yeah, know, exactly. In, in yeah. terms of the impact. But the Sex Pistols, actually, like in my memory of it, it was like, what is going on? But you listen to it now, it's like, that's no, not that hard to understand. No, you, no, you no. Know, it was just the tone of it. Right. Because people had been angry before, but they were angry in a way that the nothing matters kind of way. which uh, Nihilistic. Nihilistic, exactly. Yeah. Which was really different back then. I just listened to uh, the first two Who records, which I had not really listened to. That was like punk rock. Kinda. I mean, some of it really was, but I didn't realize it had this weird R and B streak. I mean, there's some f oh, yeah, straight yeah. up like James Brown song on there. Yeah, I, th I think uh, Pete Townsend was influenced by a lot of stuff and jazz, of course. Yeah, I just read his book. But I think if I can continue being boring for a second, I'll stop. 1965 was sort of a punk rock year. Um, the Who with my generation. Yeah, Dylan, um, like uh, Rolling Stone, Rolling Stone, Satisfaction. That to me is like the first year of like uh, punk rock. The right? whole shift in rock and roll yeah, was yeah. happening from like, the fifties. Yeah, exactly. I can't get no satisfaction. Is like a direct cousin, I think, to Sex Pistols. Never mind the Bullocks. Yeah, it all has. Uh, it's all there. Yeah, <laughs> it's just an evolution. It wasn't it great back in those days where actually the best song did go to number one? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's I'm, what I want to live again. I don't know what the charts are anymore. I don't know how it works. I don't know anything. There seems I, to be a lot of them. Are there even singles? I, I don't know. Yeah, they, Is it I a mean, made up thing in the, the bottom Rolling Stone? Oh, something's number seven, but what are they number seven on? Are yeah, no, they have the charts still. I don't know what they are. Yeah. I don't know who's involved. And how do you do it? Like, Do I call in and uh, I, I, vote? I, I, vote? <laughs> I, like, yeah, I, I imagine it's still based on sales of some kind. I and I figure the last, like in for my own personal taste, the last time that something was great and deserved to be number one was Nirvana. Really? That was the last time? That I remember. 
Is that, there's probably something I'm forgetting. Well, that was pretty big. I remember when that came out. And it was, was great. A, it was the greatest rock album, and it actually went to number and one. And you couldn't avoid it. It was everywhere. Yeah. What was it like 80, 90, 1990, 92? The, the sad thing is that it, it, like it got overplayed. It, what it should have been was our little secret. Uh, this is so good. I wish other people could hear this. That, like, it yeah, it never, nothing ever stays that way. Yeah. So, all right. So, at, initially, it was you, Luciano. Luciano Casimiri and uh, Dave Foley. We were the Toronto uh, Kids in the Hall. And and then how, how did it evolve? So you guys were doing the theater sports, theater sports. and you got pushed out because they were... Uh, well, no, we kept doing it. We didn't get pushed out They just because uh, we needed some place to perform. Now, in Calgary, there was a... That's where oh theater God. sports started, Calgary. And Mark McKinney and Bruce McCullough and three other guys were all brilliant. We're in a troupe called The Audience. In Calgary. And we're hearing uh, things that, though they were a couple years older than us, that they were doing things like we were doing. And then we should you heard that across day. the country, across the theater sports uh, grapevine. Uh huh. Like these guys were like, uh, you got, you wanted to meet these guys. Yeah, yeah. We went. And then in '83 was the uh, Great Calgary Exodus. Uh, all these comedians and musicians, uh, including the group that later became the Shadowy Men from a Shadowy Planet, who, who did all our music and our theme song, they moved to Toronto because they were all the biggest thing in Calgary. But it was Calgary, so they moved to Toronto, which is like the big uh, right. smoke um, in Canada. Yeah. And then um, we started working with them. They were like, um, they were more accomplished than us. They'd been, they were a couple of years uh, older, and there were five of them. So we sort of, they liked us right away. So we became featured players in their shows. Okay, so it was Mark, Mark and Bruce and... And Gary Campbell, uh, who was brilliant. Norm Hiscock, who uh, became uh, the head writer of the Kids in Hall, probably one of the best sketch writers ever. I met that guy. He's brilliant. Yeah. Yes, you have met him. Yeah, I have. He did Saturday Night Live, King of the Hill, uh, Park and Recreation. Now he's on um, uh, Brooklyn Nine Nine. Is that what it's called? Oh, is he? Yeah. So he's like a big dude. Yeah, and I, he really I, he is one of the best writers ever. Well, they, well, did you guys all write initially? Yeah, we all wrote. That's when people say, "Who's Lennon McCartney?" And I say, "This is just my opinion. Uh, I, I don't speak for the rest of the troop." I say, uh, "Bruce is probably the best writer of the five of us." Yeah, but uh, we all write. All right. So okay. So these guys come to Toronto and they're letting you feature. What does that mean? So there's there's five of those guys. Yeah, and three of th us. Three of you, and we're uh, we're allowed to do. We, we come in and do some like. Uh, Smaller parts. Were you playing at the? This was at uh, the theater sports still. No, they started. Uh, they had bigger dreams than we ever thought of. They booked a theater, uh -huh. like a real theater in Toronto, yeah. and uh, they would do a Saturday midnight show. And uh, nobody came at first. Um, this was before we got our regular club, the Rivoli. Um, it was actually a. People started quitting because they got really great jobs. Who? Uh, Gary Campbell and Frank Van Keeken. Um, uh, Norm never came to uh, Toronto. Norm stayed in Calgary for a bit. He was getting married. So he wasn't there yet. He wasn't there yet. He moved a few years later when we had the TV show. And then uh, it sort of became... So they were running out of guys. people. They were running out of people. The kids in Har are basically the losers who couldn't get work. <laughs> or or chose to stick by their guns. <laughs> yeah, if you want to be heroic about it. Uh, well, was everybody trying to get work? Um, yeah, yeah. well, like, what sketch comedy troops make it? Even Python, they weren't, like, best friends. Uh, they'd all worked together for years, but it wasn't as some TV executive said, oh, uh, you two should work with you two and get idle. Uh, like, there's not any real sketch troops who were friends first that the, the really made it. I don't think. Right. Mark's brothers were brothers. Yeah. Like, like that's close. Right. Right. SCTV. They all auditioned for Second City and worked their way up to SCTV. So we just thought 
that sketch comedy was a thing that you you make you get friends you do it and then you get conquered and divided you get hired to, to be either in second city or uh, tv shows or as writers um or I'll, I'll do commercials to make a living like that, that's that's what we thought we didn't think like a whole troop who were friends first from scratch could make it so you when you guys all started doing uh, the the bit parts in in the other guy's show yes. you became friends with those guys yes and soon we were like equal right and and everybody uh, got along right away. Everyone got along right away, and um, and you must have impressed each other with your your approach to things or your. Well, we had the wit. same mind. We had the same mindset, really. We Which was what exactly? Way. Do you think? Oh, I wish I could define it. Uh, like, what did you what did you say no to? I guess would be an easier <laughs> way to answer that. When well, like got, we thought a lot of things would be hokey or cheesy. I, I guess the word we used a lot then now seems pretentious was hip. We were yeah. sure, we sort of had the same definition of the word uh, hip. I think it has something to do with being ironic and meaning it at the same time. Right, but also like I think you guys sort of invented a type of um, a sort of sketch that, that wasn't. It didn't. Like there's certain sketches you guys did. I think that SNL eventually started doing where it was completely driven by the, the absurdity of the thing. Yeah, well, like I always think that we're a combination of Annie Kaufman and the Carol Burnett show uh-huh. because we do. Um, whereas Monty, Monty Python really um, screwed around with the form that they could they could end a sketch halfway through or jump somewhere else. We were like beginning, middle, and end. We were like very in that way. Anything weird we did happened within the normal structure of a sketch. But it seemed like I don't know much about Python, but it doesn't seem to to me that initially they were a live show. I mean, it seemed like they were doing things with film and doing things on location and doing things with genres and 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 things within film almost well they were like us we could the one thing we copied was their structure the tv show i think they were like 70 percent in front of a live audience and 30 percent in front of film and their first couple of years doesn't seem like it's in front of a live audience because they had the old bbc old ladies that they bust in for the th- so no one really laughed they didn't know who they were at first it wasn't right. their third or i guess second or third season where they got their audience so you guys were on a soundstage yeah, we were uh, we were on a soundstage. We had a uh, we again. We wanted to be hip. We didn't have like a warm up comic uh, to open up uh, warm up the audience. We had our rock band, the Shadowy Men. We put a we made a giant pedestal, and they uh, they were literally on a pedestal, and they would play. And then when they they finished um, uh, their small twenty minute concert, we'd start taping the show. Now, okay, so when you guys all started uh, hanging out together, and and the the group started to form, yes. Was there some sort of uh, mission statement? Was there an agenda? I mean, like you saw these other guys getting work. Did you guys make a commitment to each other, or were you still sort of like, "Look, if I get work, I got to go"? Or you, you, well, you know. uh, at one point, uh, we we quit for a second, um, and I remember it what only last like um, after the other guys quit, everybody quit. Well, we no one was coming to these theater shows. Not and, the big theater, not the, the, the big the big theater. Uh, the really hadn't happened yet. Then I remember Mark walking me, uh, coming to my apartment, said, "Let's go for a walk." Yeah. And we walked along Lake Ontario, and he said, "I'm thinking that we should try again, try smaller, like you, uh, go to the club, the Rivoli, which we had played a little bit, and uh, rent it out, try to get a night a week, and do new sketches." Um, before I asked Bruce and Dave, um, "What do you think?" It's, "Oh yeah, yeah, I'm a movie usher. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's what I want to do." And Scott hadn't joined yet. Uh, for some reason, Mark was obsessed. There should be five people. Maybe he was thinking Monty Python. Uh huh. And Mike had already left, Mike Myers. So Dave and I were thinking of a comic named Tim Sims. Wait, Mike was working with you? Or no, no, Mike was already, he was. He had moved to, because he had done uh, a few scenes with us uh, before. At Second City. Right. And, and, you, and you were thinking like, maybe we could hire that guy. Yeah, we want a fifth guy. He's obviously like a comedy genius. Yeah. Uh, that would be the guy. Yeah. 
but I think Mark and Bruce thought that that area was covered by Dave and I already. Yeah. So uh, we wanted a guy like Tim Sims, who was very funny. Uh, but again, his area was covered by Dave and I. Mark was obsessed with Scott Thompson, uh, who we met through theater sports. Actually, the, we were at the, the theater show I'm telling you about, uh, the Midnight Show. Yeah. Uh, I, we found this out years later. We did a scene at the end where uh, it was like a it was a bad scene. It was a mad scientist who discovered jelly donuts or something stupid like that. And what we had done before the audience came in was tape jelly donuts underneath the seats. And then um, at the end, Gary Campbell, who played the mad scientist, said, and there's jelly donuts for everyone in the audience. Look on your seats. And this show was so bad, they started throwing donuts at us. I, I remember being, I'm crying, being covered with powder and jelly. And we found out later that the guy who started that was Scott Thompson. Started the jelly donut uh, He started the, uh, throwing jelly donuts at us. Really? And he, he said later, as he was throwing jelly donuts, he said, um, uh, this was the worst show ever, but I have to join them. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, like somehow he became the fifth guy and that's when we started the Rivoli uh, Mark was obsessed Monday. with Scott Thompson because he was, of his performing yeah of his performing he had an energy where'd you see we him he have. was part of theater sports he was part of theater sports he was in a group called the Love Cats uh -huh. there were three of them they would play the Curious Love Cats which was current back then and they would uh, wear um, uh, one piece like pajama things and, okay and that was their like host. union suits Sorry, like, like uh, yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. and then uh, and he became uh, he be the fifth kid. The fifth kid, like he just kept coming because of Mark. But Dave and I were prejudiced against him. And uh, why? Well, Scott would say it's because I'm gay, isn't it? And we say no, it's because you're an actor. <laughs> we, we couldn't stand the idea of an actor um, <laughs> doing comedy. Years later, I thought, oh, Tom Hanks is as good as a comedian. But back then, I was like prejudiced. You're either a comedian or you're an actor. Yeah. I was kicked out of acting college because I'm a comedian. Because I'm a comedian. Yeah, they did the right thing. <laughs> <laughs> So all right, so there was no real leader. There was no, no if if you uh, if you really explored um, the guy who does the most leading is like Bruce. Yeah, but there's no like official leader. Uh huh. He's the most organized and the smartest and the business guy. Okay, so he y'all just took that for granted that you like that he's going to take care of that. Yeah, yeah. When I think about all the things I didn't do in the early days, like uh, like Mark got the posters going, like Bruce booked the things, and I just took it for granted. Mum, were, Mum was going to clean the kitchen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> did, did he ever get uh, uh, angry about it? Uh, once Mark got angry at me uh, because he uh, he always like for our Monday show when during our supper break, like a few hours before it started, he would staple the uh, curtain. Uh, like because there was no curtain, it was a rock club that we yeah. were playing. And then one day he said, "I'm sick of this," and he put a, a stapler in my. Uh, like he gave it to me, like he hit me in the chest with it. And he said, "I'm going out to eat. You staple the curtain." And of course, <laughs> I was crying, stapling the curtain. I was useless. And the very first scene, someone comes out and the curtain comes falling on them. Oh. <laughs> he was right. Like like I said, I, I took things for granted. Like it, things were just being done for me. Uh, yeah, I was pulling my weight with the the comedy part of it. But there were the things that uh, like I never even thought about. Now, when you guys started at the Rivoli, I mean, were you were you just were, were you writing all the sketches, or did you or were they just a loose framework, or did you know we we didn't like uh, we wrote the sketches. We didn't write it on a piece of paper. We'd uh, work on Saturday and Sunday. I made sure I got by like uh, that. I wasn't ushering till Saturday night or Sunday night. What kind of theater was it? A was it a, a just a regular movie theater, or was it a revival it's a, house? Or? It's an art. It was an art house. Oh, okay. A lot of French movies. Yeah. Uh, a lot of and French Dave worked movies. there too. Dave worked there for uh, not as long as I did, but for a shorter time, uh, he wor he worked there. 
I got him like a few uh, movie usher jobs because I went from one theater to the next, but that was the big one. You liked movie ushering? I loved it. I was like the funny usher. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> and you could watch all the movies. And I could watch all the movies. And you could, um, um, as long as you brought your own card in, you could have free popcorn. Oh, okay. There you go. <laughs> that was great. Yeah. I lived on popcorn for a while. The perks. <laughs> yeah, the perks. So your show was every what night? Every Monday night. So Saturday and Sunday, you guys would We work. would, uh, yeah, we'd bring our premise ideas and then we would sort to of- To someone's re- house or- To uh, actually a basement in a church next to the Salvation Army that my dad had just left. Really? Yeah, yeah. So now, when where, are you going to visit your dad? What's the relationship at this point? Uh, yeah, I visit him every, um, uh, I, I felt bad for him. And he was, um, he'd rented a, like a, a one room apartment and he'd got a job. He was like the greatest salesman ever. Um, he didn't immediately get back to the dental equipment world, which he did eventually, but he was at a lo- local downtown Toronto flower shop mm-hmm. selling flowers. Uh-huh. So I like I and visited, trying to stay sober and trying to stay sober, and he yeah. did uh, for like a few years. Uh huh. And like I said, even when he drank again, instead of like uh, two bottles of vodka a day, it was like three or four bottles of beer. So oh my god! Better. So he was like, you know, two bottles of vodka. He was like, it must have been hard to come off of that. Yeah, yeah. He, I, I remember. Uh, had to strap him down, probably. <laughs> well, during the few years that he was sober, I remember him like changing color. Like the color was coming coming back to him. Like he was sort of yellow. Yeah. Before, and uh, I remember the yellow slowly fading from him. Oh my God! Is he still alive? No, he uh, died in two thousand four. Oh my God! And your mom? Uh, she died uh, in nineteen ninety seven. They both died of aneurysms. Really? Yeah. There's something in their brain. Yeah, so every time uh, I have a headache, which I don't very often, I, I freak out. I, I panic. Is that a genetic thing? I don't know. I don't. I don't even want to research. <laughs> yeah. I don't want to know. Don't Google that. I don't want to know. So you're you're rehearsing in the church basement next to where your dad just checked out. Yeah. And so was it emotionally loaded for you? I mean, was there like a it pain? was it was like the the very first Saturday we did it, and then maybe for the first few minutes every Saturday. Yeah. But then it just became about the work. Yeah. And you would just improvise through stuff. We would like write through improv. We'd talk about the premises, and then we'd um, we'd write the, the we'd work on each scene for an hour or two, uh, all the way, the Saturday, Sunday, Monday till the show started. And then we had like um, usually had like a, for some reason eleven scenes, and then uh, anything we needed to fill in, we would improvise a couple times. And and when did it start taking off? I mean, how? Well, okay. So we started uh, the fall of 84, and the first, uh, th- th- that whole part of 84, there were only 12 or 13 people in the audiences, but there was like word sort of spreading out. And then in, uh, I remember late January 85, um, there was the biggest blizzard ever to hit Toronto. Things were closed down. It was also the day of the famous Air India um, disaster, I remember. And it just didn't feel like a comedy day, and we knew nobody was coming. And that was the first time, and then from then on, there were lineups around the block. It was like... Uh, what do you mean? You knew, like, you guys did a show for nobody? Uh, until that point. But that night, they were like, it was sold out, it was standing room only. For, for some reason, people started coming that night. Oh, really? After the air disaster yeah, and the blizzard? and the blizzard. They needed some relief. <laughs> I guess so. And ever since then, I mean, until the summer of 85, we were sort of becoming a local cult Toronto thing. And then one day, Mark McKinney said, in the summer of 85, said... Uh, we're, we do new sketches every um, every week. There's some good ones. Why don't we rent a theater out and do a best of? And so we rented a theater called the Tarragon. And all that week, we sort of became a Toronto sensation. We got like great reviews. We got on Much Music, which was Canada's MTV. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, great reviews. And this is what happened. Uh, it was the exact um, month that Lauren Michaels, who had just taken five years off Saturday Night Live, 
had decided to come back to Saturday Night Live. So he was sending um, scouts over all the comedy cities in the world, uh-huh. uh, Boston, New York, uh-huh. San Francisco, LA, Toronto. And uh, on our very last show, um, the guy he sent got there just as the show was starting. And uh, that was... The, so. That morning when I woke up, I got a phone call that we were going to go to Pam Thomas's office. She was the biggest agent in Canada. Uh, she was Dave Thomas's wife, mm-hmm. SDV, and she had a pipeline to Lauren Michaels. Um, the Lauren Michaels wanted to talk to us, mm-hmm. and then she wanted to sign us. And then you met. Uh, what was the meeting with Lauren? You all flew down to New York. No, there were too many of us. They didn't want to waste money, so they flew Franken and Davis down to uh, Toronto, and we did a private show of the Rivoli. Our audition was a, a private show of the Rivoli with Franken and Davis. And for your own series? For, uh, no. Uh, he didn't have the, that idea yet. Okay. It was uh, just to see we were in the center line. And he... Uh, Franken's th- funny. Franken is so funny. For a senator, he must be hilarious. I don't know. No, I think he keeps it in check. I think he's really mm-hmm. earnest about it. And uh, like I was talking about that with someone the other day, because I, you know, I... Before he was, he's just very dryly and brilliantly funny. Yeah. And it it must be difficult uh, when, uh, as a senator or as a fan, do you sort of kind of waiting, you know? (laughs) Yeah. Here here it comes. For the funny part. Yeah. I loved his radio show that I saw. Was it on IFC? On on Air America? Air America. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I love that. And uh, also, uh, Frank and Davis, their sketches in um, the Frank and Davis show. Did Uh, Davis pass away? I think so, yeah. What was his first name again? Tom? Yeah, I think you did. The sketches they did, the Frank and Davis show sketches, was one of what, uh, when I was a kid, what I labeled as uh, hip. Oh, yeah. No, they were cool. That was like the hippest, like uh, one of the hippest things, I think, in the 70s. Yeah, he was. He hung around Saturday Night Live forever. Yeah, he was always right. Lauren Michaels is like so loyal. Like, like, um, like uh, I think he's an amazing guy that way that uh, you always know you have a job. Yeah, no, I think he was real good to him. You know what I mean? Yeah. And uh, All right, so they come. They they show up. Yeah, they show up. And I remember uh, then afterwards, uh, we uh, went to the uh, cafe part of the Rivoli, and Franken saying, uh, I remember Franken saying, you guys are so good, but we can't hire all five of you. Right. So they hired the two oldest ones, uh, Mark and Bruce, who were like the probably the best writers at that time, the writing the most stuff. So they worked on the Anthony Michael Hall year for Saturday Night Live. They, as writers only. As writers only. Right. I, for like a year, right? For a year. And then Lauren Michaels at 86. But they, they, every time they had a week off, because you uh, you always get a week off every month in Saturday yeah. Night Live, they came back to Toronto. They, this is the amazing thing about Mark and Bruce. They they didn't think they'd gone to the next level. They were still thinking of themselves as kids in the hall. So they'd come back to Toronto and we would do a Rivoli show. And the, some of our scenes that later made the TV show, the, some of our most famous scenes were created that year uh, during those shows Which when we were Saturday Night Live. Uh, Salty Ham, um, uh, Dr. Seuss Bible, uh-huh. um, Simon and Hecubus. Yeah. Like, uh, and uh, I'll remember some more later when I'm uh, when later at the hotel. Yeah. I'll, I'll call you. <laughs> I'll tell but you. Why? Because they were just so in the groove of writing and so prolific, and that they yeah. That. Well, they weren't satisfied in Saturday Night Live. Like Saturday Night Live was just starting again with the Lauren Michaels year, and, right? And uh, you know, it was a different kind of writing, and the stuff they really wanted to write, they uh, they could do, um, you know, with us. And uh, years later, McKinney became a cast member for yeah. a while, right? Ten years after that, yeah. Bizarre. All right, so cause, so you go back, they're writing for the year, and then how did the deal with uh, Lauren sort of materialize to put the show on? In- well, Pam Thomas, uh, our manager, kept pushing that we should be uh, doing a TV show. And so Lauren Michaels came, and this, uh, we rented another theater out, uh, Factory Lab, I think, and we did another week show, and Lauren Michaels came and saw us, and then he promptly fired uh, Mark and Bruce from Saturday Night Live and signed us to a, um, to a deal to do a pilot, it it was slow. It took a couple years to like to get the pilot going. For really? Season. Yeah. A couple years? 
Yeah. Uh, first, a year later, Lauren flew us to um, New York to write the pilot and to, in his words, toughen us out. Yeah. Which meant performing in front of New York audiences. And it did toughen us out. What year was that? 87? That was 87. Uh-huh. And then uh, we, I remember we were writing the pilot in uh, the Brill Building where uh, Lauren's company is, but we had Broadway to share- Broadway Video. Broadway there. Video. Yeah. We had to share, it was sort of like a large closet, but we had to share the office with the two uh, taxmen who were uh, auditing Broadway <laughs> Video. <laughs> I remember they were like little like uh, Weasley guys with glasses, but I remember I was thinking of funny stuff and you could hear the two little Weasley guys la- giggle every now oh, and really? then. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> so, all right, so it took two years to put the pilot together and then it was produced on Canadian television. Well, it was always an HBO show first. Uh, Lauren Michaels uh, talked uh, HBO into uh, to doing it. But then, because uh, we had these uh, apartments for six months in New York, uh, Midtown Manhattan, and it was taking so long to figure, uh, for us to figure out what the show was, uh, they ran out of money. So uh, then it was uh, HBO didn't know what to do. They were running out of money. So Bruce McCullough said, well, CBC would probably love to be in business with Lauren Michaels, even if they don't know who we are. And it was like Bruce's idea to get CBC involved, so it became a, a joint production, and that's how we had enough money to do a TV show. It's very interesting to me to, to hear the dynamics of it, because, I mean, I think few sketch groups have you know, had the impact that you guys have had. I mean, and, and your fans are, are legion and loyal, and they're always excited to hear about you. And I don't know that everybody knows this. I don't know that a book was written, was it? No, we keep talking about it, but it never like it happens. I, I would, I would like to do it. So somebody has to put together the history. I guess yeah. it's my job. Yeah, I guess so. Thank you very much. Well, let's write a book. <laughs> you guys write the book. <laughs> oh, okay. Where does Mark live? Mark lives in Toronto. Bruce and Dave are Los Angeles, as I was until I moved to Winnipeg, and then Scott and Mark are in uh, Toronto. Okay, Scott, Mark, and Toronto. Kevin, li- literally in the center of North America in Winnipeg, and then uh, they're in here. Dave and Bruce they're here. are here. Yeah. All right, so so that so how many shows did you do? Uh, how many TV sh- shows? Yeah. We did five seasons of twenty shows a season. So you did a hundred shows. Yeah, because I remember when I was working at Comedy Central, we would run them. They were they were very popular, and that must have been the second run because that was nineteen. Yeah. Well, maybe not. I mean, that was I was there in ninety two, so they'd all run already by season four. HBO uh, after season three, they were. D- Sort of done with us. So then Lauren Michaels talked CBS into buying us like late night. But you're correct. Um, like all cult things, it, we, uh, it took a while and it wasn't really to the Comedy Century, uh, Comedy Century, Comedy Central uh, uh, repeats got our, like got our fan base because they ran it all the time. And apparently for like most of the second half of the 90s and the early part of the 2000s, the number one rated show on the Comedy Central was Saturday Night Live repeats, and we were the number two. Right, and that's where we got our like, uh, like we took four years off after the movie Brain Candy, and then we uh, did our comeback tour, and it was crazy. We were like selling out, and it was like a successful tour, and we we had no idea because we were in our own cocoon. We didn't know that our repeats were like snowballing in popularity. The kids. Yeah, the kids came around. Yeah. And it still happens every year. Something happens, uh, like repeats, or then YouTube, or, uh-huh. or now Netflix. So uh-huh. like, uh, like Is it all on Netflix now? Yeah. When And that just happened? That happened a year or so ago. That's a big deal. Yeah, yeah. It is. So like, there's always young people at our shows. Now, when, how often do you tour? I mean, what, you guys, what, you went out last year? Or yeah. What? How many uh, cities did you do? We, we toured 2008. We're, we're getting together now to do a new tour. Now what the days... To keep it interesting, our last two tours and this one will be uh, as well all new material. Uh-huh. So we're meeting in different cities. Uh, we just did Toronto, where we just sneak shows after writing new stuff like the old days. Meeting, talking about premises. How did it go? 
It went very well. And now we're doing Austin. Um, so we're going to have enough stuff for a tour soon. You're going to Austin for Moon Tower? Yeah, that's it. Oh, really? Yeah. Are you going to be there? I'll be there. Oh, excellent. Oh, that's great. We should see each other's shows. I'll do it. Yes. I have to write some new material, too. Excellent. But I'm, I'm just by myself. Yeah, is it a? Yeah, now writing by myself, I have to kid myself that I'm collaborating. Uh-huh. I, I take an hour off and I come back with a different attitude, or, <laughs> or sometimes I think, what would Dave say? And I know him so well, sometimes I can come up with something. So that's going to be the first um, shot at uh, the new material in, in Austin. The, the, the second shot, Toronto was. Uh, we did Toronto in December. Right. The second shot. And and you guys, you're all getting along. And what? Would, but when you go out on tour now, like when you went out in 2008, how many cities did you do? We usually do about thirty, and you and you sell out. Uh, yeah, I mean, the first time we super sold out, and then the second time it was a little less. <laughs> Third time it got a little less, and now it's starting to build again because um, Netflix. It's Netflix, and it's like a circle. You're like, you know, like, like people. Oh, we saw them already, and now, oh, we got to see them again. Do you do any sort of encore sketches like the oldies? Do you ever do oldies? Or Our what first you- few tours were, and now we're discussing. Should we do some like oldies? It's like uh, like it's not like we're a rock band where we have to play Stairway to Heaven, right? Uh, because they sort of, I think, what's sort of exciting about it is it's you never know what the answer is. They're excited about seeing new sketches, but they'd be disappointed not to see Chicken Lady. But if we just showed old sketches, they'd be a little disappointed. And there's nothing new, right? How has it changed though? I mean, what do you as you're all middle aged guys, yeah. So how does that inform the thing now? I Middle mean, age if we live to a hundred. Yeah. yeah. Well, well, you know, I'm just. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So you're, you're okay. You're more than halfway done. Yeah, yeah. Okay, but how does that inform the writing? I mean, do you do you play to that at all? I mean. Oh yeah, like uh, we don't uh, consciously talk about it, but like the last tour, for example, uh, there were a lot of scenes. Uh, the guys were writing about having children. Uh-huh. And, uh-huh. Uh huh. And having like seven or eight year olds now, and uh, and now there are a few scenes thinking about death in the end. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know, just like Bob Dylan albums. Yeah, like, sure. Like the, the Getting tempest. dark. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, um, it like it sneaks in, or um, or like uh, retirement. And, the, and do you like guys that. have fun? Yeah, it, it is fun. I sound. I wish I w- uh, could find a way to say it without sounding phony, but it's the most fun. When I was doing the TV show Kids in the Hall show, uh, those five years. I read an article from Dave Thomas in the Toronto Sun. They were interviewing him, and he said, you know, when I was doing SCTV, I wish I'd realized this was going to be the best time of my life. I was doing what I wanted with my friends, and that influenced me, so I constantly went around enjoying myself, <laughs> like enjoying the moment, because <laughs> yeah. I knew it wasn't going to last. Yeah. But we're lucky enough that uh, we have this factory called the Kids in Hall that we can get back to every few years yeah. that SCTV never really did. So uh, so I know I'm really lucky, and because uh, it, it's what Dave Thomas said. I get to write what I want with my best friends. Yeah, and it's and it's still a blast. And it's still a blast. Now, what do you do when you're not doing kids in the hall stuff? Well, I'm in Winnipeg. Uh, yeah, and I am. Uh, I'm sort of like uh, going around. I've been out of the Hollywood scene for a few years. I'm bit by bit reminding them of me. Uh, and I'm touring. Uh, I've started stand up. I'm not really stand up. I sort of play a character of a guy who has trouble doing stand up. Uh huh. And, For an uh, hour you do that? Uh, the best I could do is 35 minutes. I uh-huh. can't think of a 36th minute. Yeah, it's hard. I 30, can't think of a 36th. But once you do, you're going <laughs> to go all the way to 50. All the way to 50, yeah. 50 I yeah. guess so. The, the next, that's the next portal. Though. So you're doing comedy working. clubs with this guy? I, I do comedy clubs. Um, and uh, I also, I'm teaching workshops of what I described, how we wrote, writing through uh, sketches through improv. I just did one this week. 
uh, like I get them to create sketches, and then there's a show at the end. We How just was it attended? At uh, very well, because uh, of this cult kid in the hall thing, this factory that I'm. But do uh, you do you find that you're a good teacher? Do, do people resonate with the? Yeah, the, the surprisingly, um, like I know that sometimes I get so excited I stutter, but I think overall, like um, they seem to. Um, it does seem to resonate. I get nervous at first because they all come out with their big eyes and they have pen and paper and they're ready yeah. to write. Yeah. Like, oh my God, I got to say something writing worthy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Where'd you do the workshop? I did it uh, here at uh, IO in Pop uh-huh. Olympics. Uh-huh. And like uh, young kids? Yeah, it's uh, it's all young kids. With, uh, well, there's some young kids in their mid-30s. Um, but there's some uh, it's a lot of young kids here in LA it was like like young kids it would have been like me and Mike Myers I guess Uh uh, when we were 17 and 19 and and is your structure is that unique to to write uh, premises and then improvise and then go back to the writing and then perform it is that I don't think so I think every sketch troupe ever started that way Uh Um, the unique thing is that that we kept building and we never like quit that we first learned how to write that way and then we had a TV show where we had to use um, this new thing called computers mm-hmm. in the late 80s it would, thank God it wasn't typewriters that would have been so hard yeah I don't know how people did it I I would have quit because uh, right before the TV show I, I tried typewriting but um, you can't rewrite you can't delete something and write it right away so you have this whole page of a mess that you don't like and yeah yeah so you got to rewrite retype the whole page again right uh, like uh, there's no way just logistically I don't think I would have been interested in writing as I am uh, as interested as I am if it stayed as typewriters yeah I, I don't know how people did it you know, yeah, without know. cut and paste and Fitzgerald and Hemingway yeah Neil Simon like uh, Woody Allen they, uh, they still use the typewriter all of them Woody Allen still uses the same typewriter that he his first one from the fifties. Yeah, it's uh, I guess it's a ritual. It's a I magical so. instrument. I guess, but you see, like I saw the documentary on him, and he has a lot of cutting and pasting. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You see, like that. That's uh, I'm a workaholic when it comes to writing, but when it comes to logistical stuff like that, I'm not uh, like a cut a paste workaholic. Yeah, I need a computer. And you do? Do you go out on auditions? You did some animated stuff. I know that. Uh, yeah, I still do cartoons uh, from Winnipeg. There, like, there's always someone with a headset on in a, a LA studio, and I'm. Uh, there's a blizzard outside the window. <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're doing funny stuff? And I'm doing a funny fish voice. <laughs> I did a one-man show in Montreal uh, the just for laughs. I saw you there, too. You saw the kids in Hall, no, too? No, but I saw you in Montreal. That was the last time I saw you, I think. Right, was right. this just this last year, wasn't we it? We see each other at festivals a lot. Yeah, we do. Yeah, yeah. What was that one-man show? That was the same one. Okay. Hemi and the kids. Uh, like, I haven't done it for a couple of years. But I was in Montreal, and I did the show. And then afterwards, some guy came up to me, um, and he said, uh, and it was kind of like I was tired. It was the last show, the, the week festival, uh, me doing it for a week. And he came up, uh, and there was a parade going on outside. Some Montreal always has a parade happening on uh, yeah. Sherbrooke Street. And, uh, and the guy came and said, uh, your dad, he sold dental equipment. Did he have gray hair? Did he like the yellow sweaters? Uh, yeah. I said, well, I was a bartender uh, down the street, and... He, d- I remember now. He told me about uh, his son being a famous comedian and how proud he was of you, and uh, he did have. You're right. Two or three beers and he'd leave. Wow. And I, th- and of course, like I'm crying. There's a parade going on, and <laughs> I said, "He said he was proud of me." It was like an like, ending of a bad movie. <laughs> so is that the new ending of the one man show? It should have been, but no. <laughs> It's, I got to make sure that it doesn't get like hokey, right? Yeah. I, I, I got to sort of do with a little, a little bit of soul and a little bit of sense of detachment or else it's like every comedian has a show with a drunk father. It's a tricky thing, one man shows, not yeah. to make it hokey. Yeah. Yeah. So when do you go back to Canada? 
Uh, well, I'm uh, flying back in a couple of days to Winnipeg, but then I, I start going out again in my workshop uh, comedy tour. I do uh, workshops during the days and uh, perform uh, the comedy at night. Well, I'm glad you're doing well. Thank you very much. That's very nice. This was so much fun. It was? <laughs> I love talking. Yeah. You're a good talker. Well, thank you. Well, I told you what had happened with the other Kevin McDonald. Yes. That was hilarious. That was hilarious. I, and I told you what happened, right? That I always get his mail and then the IRS uh, demanded that I... Did I tell you this? IRS demanded that I pay $350,000 of... Uh, Hold on. Now, let's, let me just set this up a little bit because I don't know how I'm going to put right. the show together. But I'll, I'll tell you exactly what happened is my assistant booked Kevin McDonald. So I'm like, she said, do you want to talk to Kevin McDonald? I'm like, yeah, I want to talk to all the kids in the hall. I like Kevin. And she's like, uh, okay. So she books Kevin McDonald. And then the day that you're supposed to come to, come to my house, a publicist shows up. Right. And uh, and I'm like, uh, well, hi. And she's like, yeah, Kevin's real excited. Um, <laughs> and I'm like, what? and I'm thinking like, what's Kevin McDonald doing that he's got a publicist <laughs> showing up? And uh, and she goes, you haven't seen the movie, right? I'm like, no, what what movie? Well, I say, what? No, I remember. I say, what is he playing in the movie? She goes, no, he directed it. I'm like, wow, he's directing. That's great. <laughs> and she says, he should be here in a few minutes. And then someone comes to the door and walks in. And I realize this is Kevin McDonald. I have no idea who he is. None. None. I don't know the movie. I don't know who he is. I don't know where he's from. I know nothing about him. Nothing. No, he doesn't look familiar. It's ridiculous. He has an accent. Yeah. I know nothing. And then I'm like, I'm going to need a few minutes. You guys are a little early. And I come in here and I panic. And I Wikipedia the guy. And thank God I saw Last King of Scotland. Yeah. That, that, if I hadn't seen that, I would have been lost. Yeah. <laughs> but I saw that. And, I, and then I, I got the name of the movie that you know he was plugging. But I still was not prepared in any way to have a conversation. I was so thrown off. And I didn't tell him. I didn't tell oh, him. Oh, I was going to ask that. He didn't, I did not tell him. Wow. Well, uh... So so you've had problems with this because he spells it M A C. Yeah, M A C and I'm M C. But still, we're uh, both in Willie Morris. Oh, okay. And so I, I get uh, 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 I once got asked to have lunch with Steven Spielberg. <laughs> I was asked to direct a uh, movie of a spy book. <laughs> But the biggest thing was the IRS uh, demanded that I pay the $350,000 I owe. Oh, my God. And he wasn't like, uh, it wasn't his fault. It was coming to my accountant who was ignoring it for some reason. Um, so he, he was in trouble too, I guess, because yeah. he, he didn't know about it. And it took, uh, took me six months to convince the IRS that, uh, that they had the wrong Kevin McDonald. Really? Yeah. So how how come it took that long? I don't know. You think about social security numbers and things, like uh, addresses and things like that, but they, I guess they just want to be extra careful. Have you ever met the other Kevin McDonald? I haven't. I guess it's due. <laughs> That's too much, man. <laughs> I guess I was disappointed because I, I let the phone call go a little bit more about directing the spy novel. Cause yeah, <laughs> yeah <you thought laughs> like one, seemed, maybe I could do it. It seemed intriguing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> How long? But you had to tell them that you weren't that guy. Yeah. Well, and then I felt like a jerk because I let them like talk to me the whole phone call. <laughs> and I, well, I, I guess I should let you know that I'm Kevin McDonald, the comedian. I beg your pardon. Yeah. Uh, the kids in the hall. Kids. In, is this Kevin McDonald? No, I'm Kevin McDonald. <laughs> and they were very polite, uh, but I'm sure they were saying, "Why did you let me talk to you for an hour?" That's too much, man. Well, I think you're going to be on the same show with him. Oh, excellent. I think we're going to do the Kevin McDonald. Oh, that'd be excellent. That's I think that's the plan. I would be very excited to do that. All right. Well, thanks for talking, man. Thank you very much. Sweet guy. There you go. A very unique WTF uh, featuring Kevin McDonald, the Academy Award winning Scottish film director, and Kevin McDonald, 
a member of the kids in the hall. All right? All right. Go to WTFPod.com for all your WTF Pod needs. You know, if you're going to comment, and then I make a comment about it, and then uh, you're going to be upset about that, then you probably shouldn't comment. Because a comment is a public forum, and uh, I'm going to react to them if I actually read them occasionally. I like the comments, but, uh, you know, if it's if it's out there, it's a it's public fodder. I, I understand uh, your position. I know I'm talking in code, but not necessarily to the person I'm talking to. And I appreciate your emails. So, look, do what you got to do. I'm going to go take my niece to, uh, to uh, get a picture with the Hollywood sign because I live in Los Angeles, California. Boomer lives!